0: Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Story of My Life and Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington. Chapter 8 The History of Tuskegee from 1884. To eighteen ninety four part two, although the period of the school's history about which I have written in this chapter was one of constant and substantial growth, it nevertheless was during this period that the school sustained a great loss, as well as I a great personal bereavement in the death of my beloved and faithful wife, Olivia Davidson, Washington, in may eighteen eighty nine After four years of married life, she succumbed to the overtaxing duties of mother and assistant principal of the school and passed away. Her remains were laid to rest amid the tears of teachers and students. Her words of caution, advice, sympathy, and encouragement were given with a judgment that rarely made an error. Her life was so full of deeds lessons and suggestions that she will live on to bless and help the institution which she helped found as long as it is a seat of learning two wide-awake boys baker taliaferro and ernest davidson were born to us who were then too young to know their loss they are now twelve and ten years of age respectively and they with my daughter portia are a source of much comfort and joy to me. Miss Davidson came to this school almost from the very beginning, she being the next person to come after myself. I have spoken in other places of the great assistance she was in helping to build up the school in its early days. As an estimate of her worth and character, I beg to quote the words of the Reverend R.C. Bedford, a friend who knew her worth and her great help to me and to tuskegee commenting upon her death mr bedford said olivia davidson was born in virginia june eleventh eighteen fifty four when only a little child she went with her parents to ohio where she grew up and received the education afforded by the common schools of that state at an early age she went to mississippi And there spent five years as a teacher on the large plantations. In 1878 she came north to her native state and, that she might more thoroughly fit herself for the work of a teacher, she entered the Hampton Institute, from which in one year she graduated with great honor. Her friend, Mrs. Hemingway of Boston, greatly desiring that she should prosecute her studies still further, At her request, she entered the Framingham, Massachusetts Normal School, from which she graduated in two years. In August following her graduation, she came to Tuskegee, Alabama to act as assistant to Professor Washington in the State Normal School of which he had been made principal in the July previous. From the very first, it became evident that she had found her field of labor for life everything tended to inspire her to this end. The people were poor, they were numerous, they were anxious, and aside from an act of the legislature establishing a school, it had, literally, to be created. The story of her success has often been told, and in this brief tribute cannot be repeated. August 11, 1885, Miss Davidson was married to Professor B.T. Washington. And although she at once took upon herself the cares of a very busy home life, she still retained a most important relation to the school, which no amount of warning from her friends could persuade her to drop. Her marriage with Mr. Washington proved a most happy one, and rarely has it been the lot of two individuals to be so thoroughly united in their life work. The coming of Little Baker into the home was an occasion of great rejoicing and the birth of another son just a few months before his mother's death only served to double the joy. It was my privilege to meet Mrs. Washington at Tuskegee when the school had been in operations but little more than a year, and, as one of the trustees of the school, I have had an intimate knowledge of her work ever since. It would require more than human pen to tell how deep was her love for the school and how thoroughly her life was consecrated to it every grain of sand on all those beautiful grounds and every beam and brick in the wall must have felt the inspiration of her love no more touching story could be told than that of her earnest effort to raise money from the people about tuskegee and of her toilsome walks in boston as from house to house and with an eloquence that was rarely refused she sought funds to provide shelter for the hundreds of students that were flocking to the school her character made her especially adapted to all parts of the work in which she was engaged and the stamp of her influence on the higher life of the school no time can ever efface among a people who make much show of religion but often with too little of its spirit hers was religion indeed but with so little of show as sometimes to make her life a mystery to those who did not really know her the blind and the poor and above all the aged can tell of her religion as they recall the happy thanksgiving and christmas times when they have sat at her table and her own hands have ministered to their wants and when in sickness she has visited them and relieved their sufferings no woman ever had a truer husband or more devoted friends and the memory of their kindness will rest as a precious legacy upon the school and upon all who loved her as long as time shall last while speaking of the financial growth of the school i must not neglect to indicate its growth at the same time in students as i have stated the school opened with one teacher and thirty students By the end of the first year, we had three teachers including Miss Davidson, Mr. John Caldwell, and myself. For the third session, there were 169 students and 10 teachers. For the fifth year, there were 279 students and 18 teachers. For the eighth year, there were 399 students and 25 teachers. For the tenth year, there were 730 students and 30 teachers. For the 14th year, ending in in June 1895, there were 1,013 students and 63 teachers. In the spring of 1892, at our annual commencement, we had the pleasure and the honor of a visit from Honorable Frederick Douglass, who delivered the annual address to the graduating class of that year. This was Mr. Douglass's first visit to the Far South and there was a large crowd of people from far and near to listen to the words of that grand old man the speech was fully up to the high standard of excellence eloquence and wisdom for which that venerable gentleman was noted mr douglas had the same idea concerning the importance and value of industrial education that i have tried to emphasize he also held the same view as i do in regard to the immigration of the negro to africa and was opposed to the scheme of diffusion and dissemination of the negro throughout the north and northwest believing as i do that the southern section of the country where the negro now resides is the best place for him in fact the more i have studied the life of mr douglas the more i have been surprised to find his far-reaching and generous grasp of the whole condition and need of the Negro race. Years before Hampton or Tuskegee undertook industrial education, in reply to a request for advice by Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe as to how she could best use a certain sum of money which has been or was about to be placed in her hands, Mr. Douglas wrote her in part as follows. Rochester, March 8, 1853 my dear mrs stowe you kindly informed me when at your house a fortnight ago that you designed to do something which should permanently contribute to the improvement and elevation of the free colored people in the united states you especially expressed an interest in such of this class as had become free by their own exertions and desired most of all to be of service to them In what manner and by what means you can assist this class most successfully is a subject upon which you have done me the honor to ask my opinion. I assert, then, that poverty, ignorance, and degradation are the combined evils, or in other words, these constitute the social disease of the free colored people in the United States. To deliver them from this triple malady is to improve and elevate them. By which I mean simply to put them on an equal footing with their white fellow countrymen in the sacred rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I am for no fancied or artificial elevation, but only ask fair play. How shall this be obtained? I answer first not by establishing for our use high schools and colleges, such institutions are in my judgment beyond our immediate occasions and are not adapted to our present most pressing wants high schools and colleges are excellent institutions and will in due season be greatly subservient to our progress but they are the result as well as they are the demand of a point of progress which we as a people have not yet attained a custom As we have been to the rougher and harder modes of living and of gaining a livelihood, we cannot and we ought not to hope that in a single leap from our low conditions we can reach that of ministers, lawyers, doctors, editors, merchants, etc. These will doubtless be attained by us, but this will only be when we have patiently and laboriously, and I may add successfully, mastered and passed through the intermediate gradations of agriculture and the mechanic arts besides they are and perhaps there is a better reason for my views on the case numerous institutions of learning in this country already thrown open to colored youth to my thinking there are quite as many facilities now afforded to the colored people as they can spare the time from the sterner duties of life to judiciously appropriate. In their present conditions of poverty they cannot spare their sons and daughters two or three years at boarding schools or colleges, to say nothing of finding the means to sustain them while at such institutions. I take it, therefore, that we are well provided for in this respect, and that it may be fairly inferred from the fact that the facilities for our education so far as schools and colleges in the free states are concerned, will increase quite in proportion with our future wants. Colleges have been open to colored youth in this country during the last dozen years. Yet few, comparatively, have acquired a classical education, and even this few have found themselves educated far above a living condition, there being no methods by which they could turn their learning to account. Several of this latter class have entered the ministry, but you need not be told that an educated people is needed to sustain an educated ministry. There must be a certain amount of cultivation among the people to sustain such a ministry. At present we have not that cultivation amongst us, and, therefore, we value in the preacher strong lungs rather than high learning. I do not say that educated ministers are not needed among us, far from it. I wish there were more of them, but to increase their number is not the largest benefit you can bestow upon us. We have two or three colored lawyers in this country, and I rejoice in the fact, for it affords very gratifying evidence of our progress. Yet it must be confessed that, in point of success, our lawyers are as great failures as our ministers. White people will not employ them to the obvious embarrassment of their causes. The blacks, taking their cue from the whites, have not sufficient confidence in their abilities to employ them. Hence, educated colored men among the colored people are at a very great discount. It would seem that education and immigration go together with us, for as soon as a man rises amongst us capable, by his genius and learning, to do us great service, just so soon he finds that he can serve himself better by going elsewhere. In proof of this, I might instance the Russworms, the garnets, the wards, the crummels, and others, all men of superior ability and attainments, and capable of removing mountains of prejudice against their race, by their simple presence in the country. But these gentlemen, finding themselves embarrassed here by the peculiar disadvantages to which i have referred disadvantages in part growing out of their education being repelled by ignorance on one hand and prejudice on the other and having no taste to continue a contest against such odds have sought more congenial climes where they can live more peaceable and quiet lives i regret their election but i cannot blame them for with an equal amount of education and the hard lot which was theirs, I might follow their example. There is little reason to hope that any considerable number of the free colored people will ever be induced to leave this country, even if such a thing were desirable. The black man, unlike the Indian, loves civilization. He does not make very great progress in civilization himself, but he likes to be in the midst of it and prefers to share its most galling evils to encountering barbarism. Then the love of country, the dread of isolation, the lack of adventurous spirit, and the thought of seeming to desert their brethren in bonds are a powerful check upon all schemes of colonization, which look to the removal of the colored people without the slaves the truth is dear madam we are here and here we are likely to remain individuals immigrate; nations never we have grown up with this republic and see nothing in her character or even in the character of the american people as yet which compels the belief that we must leave the united states if then we are to remain here the question for the wise and good is precisely that which you have submitted to me, namely, what can be done to improve the condition of the free people of color in the United States. The plan which I humbly submit in answer to this inquiry, and hope that it may find favor with you and with the many friends of humanity who honor, love and cooperate with you, is the establishment in Rochester, New York, or in some other part of the United States equally favorable to such an enterprise of an industrial college in which shall be taught several important branches of the mechanical arts this college shall be open to colored youth i shall pass over the detail of such an institution as i propose never having had a day's schooling in my life i may not be expected to map out the details of a plan so comprehensive as that involved in the idea of a college. I repeat, then, that I leave the organization and administration of the institution to the superior wisdom of yourself and the friends who second your noble efforts. The argument in favor of an industrial college, a college to be conducted by the best man and the best workman which the mechanic arts can afford, a college where colored youth can be instructed to use their hands as well as their heads, where they can be put in possession of the means of getting a living wherever their lot in after life may be cast amongst civilized or uncivilized men. Whether they choose to stay here or prefer to return to the land of their fathers is briefly this. Prejudice against the free colored people in the United States has shown itself nowhere so invincible As among mechanics. The farmer and the professional man cherish no feeling so bitter as that cherished by these. The lather would starve us out of the country entirely. At this moment I can more easily get my son into a lawyer's office to study law than I can in a blacksmith's shop to blow the bellows and to wield the sledgehammer. Denied the means of learning useful trades, we are pressed into the narrowest limits to obtain a livelihood. In times past, we have been the hewers of wood and drawers of water for American society, and we once enjoyed a monopoly in menial employment, but this is so no longer. Even these employments are rapidly passing away out of our hands. The fact is, every day begins with the lesson and ends with the lesson that colored men must learn trades, must find new employments, new modes of usefulness to society, or that they must decay under the pressing wants to which their condition is rapidly bringing them. We must become mechanics. We must build as well as live-in houses. We must make as well as use furniture. We must construct bridges as well as pass over them. Before we can properly live or be respected by our fellow men, we need mechanics as well as ministers. We need workers in iron, clay, and leather. We have orators, authors, and other professional men, but these reach only a certain class and get respect for our race in certain select circles. To live here as we ought, we must fasten ourselves to our countrymen through their everyday cardinal wants we must not only be able to black boots but to make them at present we are in the northern states unknown as mechanics we give no proof of genius or skills at the county state or national fairs we are unknown at any of the great exhibitions of the industry of our fellow citizens and being unknown we are unconsidered wishing you dear madam renewed health a pleasant passage and safe return to your native land i am most truthfully your gratified friend frederick douglas in october 1893 i was married to miss margaret james murray a graduate of fisk university who came to tuskegee in 1889 as a teacher she has been in every way as much interested in the advancement of Tuskegee as myself, and fully bears her share of the responsibilities and labor, giving especial attention to the development of the girls and to work among the women through their mothers' meetings in various parts of Alabama and elsewhere. End of chapter Eight, Part Two.